This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live every Monday to Friday from 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, and on the Times Radio app, where you can also listen to the Red Box Podcast. We're already doing that, so that's fine. Uh, don't forget, if there's anything you want us to cover in the podcast, you want to tell me what you think about anything we've been talking about, you can email me, matt at times.radio. Matt at times.radio. Particularly, thank you so so many of you got in touch about last week's interview with uh, Neil Kinnock, uh, which has been absolutely flying. We've had one of the biggest weeks in ages on the podcast. So many of you have been downloading it. So welcome along if you've only just discovered the Redbox podcast. Where have you been? Leave us a review if you like. It'll help with the mumbo-jumbo charts. Right, talking of mumbo-jumbo, coming up on today's episode, is Liz Truss right or is she wrong, wrong, wrong? Uh, we have got a cracking panel looking at the former Prime Minister's return to the political fray. Katie Balls, who's interviewed her. Plus, we will hear from two rival economists, Paul Johnson from the IFS and Mark Littlewood from the IEA. To, uh, to pick through her claims. And exactly, uh, does she have a point? And is she the right person to be making it? Uh, before that, though, as ever, on a Monday, we kick off with Libby Rachie. The Colonists with Libby Rachie. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to enjoy me in the studio, Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning, Matt. And beaming in from outer space is Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. Where, whereabouts are you? You're not actually in outer space, of course, Libby. Uh, well, <laughs> might as well be. Though actually, it's a nice sunny day. I'm at home. I'm just about to leave home for London. Lovely. But I'm sitting here so that I can wear my special headphones and speak to you. Well, you sound authority. loud and well, clear today. Ish, ish. Now, the first exam question I want to give to you both is who should Rishi Sunak worry more about, Boris Johnson or Liz Truss? <laughs> Rachel. Definitely Boris Johnson, I'd say. So I remember Liz Truss, a few days after she left Downing Street, I bumped into somebody who'd worked for her uh, when she was Prime Minister. And this person said she's the only woman in politics who has absolutely no imposter syndrome. And in fact, she could do with a little bit more of it. And you can just see that now, that there's yeah. no self-awareness, no kind of sense of thinking, did I make a mistake? No anxiety. Most people who sort of crashed the economy, destroyed their party's reputation for competence and been ousted after 49 days would be hiding in a dark room. But no, she's back with a sort of global tour. Um, whereas Boris Johnson also has absolutely no yeah. imposter syndrome, but he, I would say, is a much more dangerous operator. What do you think, Libby? 
Well, she really is coming on as a sort of a she-Boris, only less entertaining, isn't she, um, in this sort of determination to bounce back? I mean, obviously, the answer to your question is Boris is more cunning, he is more personable, more able to pull hordes of Tory MPs behind him. It feels to me as if they're both a bit despicable right now because they are very disloyal and damaging to their party and therefore probably quite damaging to the country at a time when what we need is a very steady, slightly boring, coherent policy and mood is born to give us. So I, I, I hate it. Um, the, well, I'm going to mount a defence of Boris Johnson. Is he being disloyal? I mean, apart from... I mean, the only thing he's, he's actually talked about in policy terms is we should send more jets to uh, Ukraine. And actually, on every... Every time he said we should do something, we've ended up doing it anyway. Then actually he was very careful in the Nadine Doris interview Friday night not to criticise Rishi Sunak. You know, he said they talk to each other and he wishes him well and, and actually wasn't trying to, at least at this point, blow him up. But meanwhile, he's got his kind of supporters going around yeah. behind the scenes staring it up like crazy. And I think the thing with both of them is that they it's all about them. It's not about the country. It's about their ambition, their power their position. Liz Truss is the only person I've ever interviewed who wanted a selfie afterwards and then immediately posted it on Twitter. With, with a- you? With Alice and me. <laughs> yeah, Alice Thompson and me. So, I mean, it's just, she. she's all about the yeah. selfie and the photo op. Boris, equally, it's all about kind of image and brand. But actually, um, you know, the country needs somebody who's thinking about other people. So, self-awareness and sort of self-reflection is also lacking, isn't it, Libby? That, that there's no... Neither of them have done a sort of mea culpa or actually with a bit of time away from number 10, I've realised that, you know, I should have done things differently and actually I am ultimately responsible. I was, you know, the, the Liz Trust line about, you know, I wasn't given a chance. Like, we weren't made Prime Minister. That's quite a big, a big chance to do your thing. Yeah, and I mean, the extraordinary thing with, with Boris is, you know, I, I, I really can't stand up for Boris just because he is saying, oh, yes, I support Rishi Sunak. He's pitching up personally, sort of uh, polishing his credentials for after dinner speaking. He's been to Davos. He's been to Ukraine again to pose with Zelensky. He's He's sort of polishing up the Boris brand all the time. And I think that is just not helpful. You know, he's a backbench MP. He's got constituents he should be looking after and paying a tiny bit of attention to, at least. And uh, I, I just think there is a there is a disloyalty in it. Um, I, I really admire people who just went back to the backbenchers and got on with it, you know, even if they were a bit grumpy there, like old Keith and... Uh, even Theresa, um, even Theresa, Theresa May. May. Theresa, yeah. Theresa May. Theresa May. You know, when you know, she does, I, she, I, I don't think that. Theresa May, apart from one of very specific issues, I don't think she's done an interview at all since she... Since she stepped down, and no. um, what do you think Keir Starmer should do? Does he just let all this play out and step back, or is this an opportunity for him to sort of lay out an, an alternative prospectus to make him look like you know they're all in fighting over there? Uh, they're either you know diddling their taxes or bullying or or showing off or failing to acknowledge their mistakes. Here, here is what I would do. Yeah, absolutely. He needs to have a clearer sense of why people should vote Labour rather than why people shouldn't vote Tory. Um, So I think that that's definitely the case, but I don't think that involves him getting involved in Tory infighting. I think there's a... They need a much clearer idea so that, you know, politics is all about narratives, isn't it? And the narrative now is forming around Rishi Sunak that the Tory party's pretty incompetent, verging on maybe even corrupt and sort of all cronyism and sort of self-obsessed party of the rich... 
But what's the positive narrative around Labour? I'm not completely sure they've got a kind of alternative prospectus. It's a really interesting uh, column by uh, Patrick McGuire in the Times today, where he actually <laughs> he points out Keir Starr has been going around for, for ages saying not to get overexcited about Arsenal winning the league. And then they lost 1-0 yesterday at uh, at Everton, which is a great metaphor for for why they, they need to sort of keep... But he does also point out that they have got... They are working on this um, sort of prospectus. Was it reimagining of the British state, a new race equality act, the farthest range of programme devolution Britain has ever known, a new climate and clean energy ministry led by Ed Miliband. Probably do with hearing a lot more about that rather than... Also, I'm not sure that is an absolutely compelling reason to vote Labour. No. More devolution. What do we want, devolution in Ed Miliband? Gordon Brownie, yeah. <laughs> well, let's move on. Let me turn the page in the comments section then. Good jokes hold us together in bad times. Uh, Libby... Uh, talking about um, why we need why we need more of a laugh. Well, I was incredibly sad at the early loss of Kit Hesketh Harvey of Kit and the Widow. Such funny, such sharp, brilliant, intelligent, ridiculous, often slightly tasteless, healingly tasteless songs. And so I wanted to pay tribute to that, and it just made me think about all the ways in which good comedy, really good jokes, which are rooted in human nature and human absurdity, rather than very shallow satire, oh, never kiss a Tories nonsense, you know, that, that actually they really hold us together and they, they form a link with, with people who, who've died, who we laughed with at the same jokes, and, you know, they, 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 they cement relationships. I love good jokes. I'm always very pleased, by the way, if on this very political programme of yours, you occasionally veer off into asking people, you know, what's the most embarrassing? thing you've ever sat on <laughs> <laughs> or questions like that I think yeah. yeah actually those are the things which will probably stay in people's minds yeah, 100%, the answers the, the, from listeners more than uh, me and Rachel banging on about whether Boris is correct we need comedy that's all I'm saying we need it on your recommendation then this is a bit of Kit the Widow's The Eaton Boating Song let's have a listen I saw Kit in the Widow, actually, at the Edinburgh Fringe quite a actually, few years the real, ago the, the, the real Kit and the Widow version is about, you know, Peter said I had to go to Eton, you know, and now he's swing, swing together, and now he's dressed, he dresses in leather with a bishop he calls Louise, <laughs> and they swing, swing together. Very <laughs> he, nice. Tasteless, tastelessness is, uh, cheers us all up. And it's, and it's more timeless, isn't it, Rachel? I mean, I know, I know having spent a lot of time writing topical jokes, they don't last very long. No, and I wonder where the music kind of slightly softens things and it enables people to be even sharper oh, than yeah, yeah. if there's no music attached. Because, of course, comedy is the great kind of empower debunker, if you like. You just think in Harry Potter, Ridiculo is the way in which you see off scary boggarts, which are your greatest fear. Comedy is a, is a really empowering, thing debunking the kind of super elite the arrogant the overbearing um the you know debunking our fears if you like uh and i and i think when it's accompanied by music maybe it's even more powerful that's an interesting thought that and also just the point that you're making a little bit that sort of collectiveness of seeing something live and laughing together 
Well, the sort of dark subjects during the AIDS crisis, you won't remember this being too young, but Norman Fowler sent out this extraordinary leaflet to every house in the country full of sexual practices you should not do. And Kit Heskel Harvey wrote a wonderful sketch uh, song of it arriving at the Queen Mother in Clarence House and her reading this, you know, you should restrain from violent anal sex. <laughs> Please use a clean syringe. And um, But that ended up, you see, very upbeat with the Queen Mother suddenly realising what she'd missed and pushing off to Tangier to a cocaine parlour. Um, and I, I think I think that sort of taking a dark time and saying actually everything's a joke in the end is actually a healing thing for many of us. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Web Box. Up next is Liz Truss right or is she wrong, wrong, wrong? Yeah, she's back. If by back you mean she's written a 4,000-word article for the Sunday Telegraph, in which Liz Truss takes aim at the Treasury, the OBR, the media, the US president and her own party. She says her core argument about Britain's decades-long failure to grow the economy with high taxing and high spending remains true. So today we ask, is Liz Truss right or is she... Wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, we're going to be talking about whether she's got a point about the economy. How institutions like the IMF or the OBR mark the government's homework, and let's be honest, quite often get it wrong. And we'll ask whether her growth plans were actually quite popular, as she claims. First, the former Prime Minister, as well as writing that article, is giving an interview to Spectator TV, which you can watch on their YouTube channel later. Here's a clip. It was I trying to fatten the pig on market day, maybe. I believed it was doable, but I knew it would be tough. I just probably didn't realise quite how tough. 
who would be more delighted than me, Katie. If there were lots of other people coming forward and making these arguments, I would be more than delighted to have other people go out there and make the case. But the fact is there aren't enough people making the case full stop. So is Liz Truss right? There aren't enough people making this case. And if she is, is she the right person to be doing it? Well, let's now speak to the Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls, who carried out the interview. Hi, Katie. Hi. Um, is Liz Truss right that she needs to be the one making this case? Or is, as several of her allies uh, were texting me yesterday, she's just the wrong messenger for what they think is the right message? I put to her in the interview, um, a lot of people listening, watching this, are going to be thinking, given the circumstances in which your premiership ended, given the market jitters, are you really the right person to be making the case? And she said, as we just heard, that the problem is she perhaps even prefer it if other people were, but until they do, she's going to keep going for it. Um, I think, as you allude to, um, she is someone who I think is quite in a quite difficult place to be the key messenger here. Um, and that means there are colleagues who support the agenda who don't want her front and centre. Um, but I think they're going to have to at least uh, live with that in the short term. <laughs> yeah, one of her um, close allies messaged yesterday saying she's no tactical understanding whatsoever. Everything, happened to ha everything had to happen at once. It's a shame. We need more moderate voices and a more cautious approach. It's all too shrill and strident. I suppose it also points to the the lack of, certainly in the Telegraph piece, the lack of apology or really recognition that she herself did anything terribly wrong. Do we get any of that from your interview? I think the Sunny Telegraph piece uh, reflects where she is and you also hear in the interview where yeah. I, don't, I don't think she is hugely apologetic. Um, I think that she, she does say that she got some things wrong, but I think when you get to the various factors that she blames for, A, the market turmoil, and then also, as a result, the way her premiership ended, um, I think you know, only one portion of that are things that she thinks she has done wrong. And I think that is clearly going to antagonise quite a few people who are watching this. Um, but then she does raise lots of concerns for the way the system works. And there are Tory MPs. Um, who I think will be quite sympathetic to that side of it. So I think it's going to divide opinion quite strongly. And where does this go then? Because the reaction, I think, even from her, her closest supporters has been a bit downbeat. On the other hand, splashed across the front of the Sunday Telegraph, big interview uh, with the Spectator TV. She knows who she's aiming at. It's not necessarily people in the Westminster bubble or the left-wing economic establishment. It's Conservative Party MPs and, crucially, members. What's her ultimate aim with all of this, do you think? I think that Rishi Sunak now has two very recent former prime ministers in the House of Commons, and they're very different in terms of the threat they pose. Boris Johnson is very much um, you know, the prince across the water, you could say, the person who wants to be back in number 10. I think with Liz Truss, the aim is much more to shape thinking within the Tory party. And perhaps that battle ideas will come before the next election, or perhaps it will really go into full swing after the next election. And I think a lot of it, but this is about saying, has the Tory party become managerial? Does it need to be more bold? Now, people will think back to obviously what happened during her premiership and perhaps say Rishi Sunak has the, you know, the, the best approach, but it's quite clear there are Tory MPs who think this is far from over when it comes to the long-term future and direction of the Tory party. Just finally, Katie, as she points out, Liz Truss herself, it's 100 days just over since she left Downing Street. 
Do you think she's really come to terms with it all? Or is, you know, to use the word that's been banded around a lot by her critics, she's still a bit delusional about what happened during her time in number 10? So I, think, I think that when I said to her, well, why now? Um, she said she had time to reflect and go through it all. But I, I think once, if you think about how much happened in that short premiership, and also just to be the shortest ever serving prime minister, I don't know at what point someone fully has all the time to go, to go through it all and process it. Also, even when I said to her, well, what toll does this take on you personally? She was fairly, you know, it was tough, but you just keep on. And I think she's someone who's kept, you know, is very much looking ahead and perhaps has been looking ahead during her time out too. That was The Spectator's Katie Bulls. And you can watch her interview with Liz Truss at five o'clock this afternoon on the uh, Spectator's YouTube channel. Although let's just let's go back to that, that little clip uh, that we heard from the interview. Let's take a listen. It was I trying to fatten the pig on market day. Which is maybe. a little bit. Opening up new pork markets. Something about pigs, isn't there? Something, definitely something about pigs and let's just... Anyway, let's get stuck into the uh, the details of this. What I want to try and get my head around is, does Liz Trust have a point, albeit she might not necessarily be the right person to be making it? In her article yesterday, she said, my plan to get Britain back on the right trajectory was popular. Well, is that right? Let's speak to YouGov's Patrick English. Patrick, is that right, that, that people supported what Liz Trust was trying to do? Um, in a word, no. Um, the, the 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 mini budgets, the kind of the, the the event, I guess, which saw her eventual downfall, was the most poorly received fiscal event that we've polled since the Conservatives took power in two thousand and ten. Now, it is true to say that if you offer the public the opportunity to have their income tax cuts or their national insurance hikes reversed, that will be popular, and indeed, we saw general support for those policies. However. The content of the rest of that mini budget, so stuff like removing the banker's bonus cap, that was very, 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 very unpopular indeed. And sort of abolishing the top rate of tax, extremely unpopular. It was seen as the wrong priority at the wrong time, when, of course, the cost of living crisis was just really starting to take hold. Um, and this trust was seen to be out of touch and not really interested in looking after the, the, the ordinary person, the ordinary family, the ordinary household, and instead more interested in, in saving more money for the rich. So, no, the ideas were not popular at all. Uh, aside from some of, some of the specific tax cuts that would have sort of gone to everybody at the same time. When she's talking specifically about the abolition of the 45p tax rate, she says in her piece, we were simply returning to the top rate that was in place for the vast majority of the 1997 to 2010 Labour government, although clearly the political sands had shifted. Is it right that public opinion has moved... What she's saying is that the public opinion has moved to the left and now people are happy with a top rate of tax higher than than what was the case uh, throughout most of the Labour government? Well, certainly when we polled on that specific policy, we found 72% were against scrapping that top rate of tax. So in a sense, I think Liz Truss is quite right there. There is no appetite at all in the British public to get rid of that tax and return the tax system to what it was previously. And there, there is a sense that that would have been very unfair. And I think particularly that's a product both probably of a, of a long term shift in public opinion, but also of the timing and of the sense that there is there is this cost of living crisis. And there was at the time people are struggling to afford their bills. They need money in their pockets to pay bills coming through their doors and giving tax cuts to the rich was just completely the wrong priority at the time. So I think probably, yes, a shifting sounds, but also the timing of it was was very bad as well from from the public's perspective. Um, and on, she says in her piece, I fully admit that our communication could have been better. 
uh, as you said during the leadership campaign, I'm not the slickest communicator. Mm. Um, do people want to hear from... If she, if she couldn't communicate it when she was in number 10, do people want to... What's her sort of personal ratings like? Do people want to hear her communicating it now? Well, by the time Liz Truss left office, she was the most unpopular prime minister, one of the most unpopular party leaders and politicians that we had ever recorded, uh, having just succeeded another one of the most unpopular leaders that we'd ever recorded in Boris Johnson. By the time that she resigned, eight in 10 people said that it was the right decision for her to go. Her favourability rating has slipped to something around minus 70, minus 75. Look, this is even worse than Jeremy Corbyn. So Liz Truss was not a popular figure. I don't think in the past 100 days that suddenly turned around. I think a lot of the damage was done through that mini budget and the way that the kind of the handle that was handled and the fallout and the the, the various sort of Westminster circuses that went around after that. Her, her rating didn't start off great, let's be honest. Started off at minus 30, so slightly better than Boris Johnson, a bit worse than Keir Starmer at the time. And it just plummeted and it went down and down and down. And there's no sense, I think, which a public are now looking back on that period and saying, well, actually, maybe we were a bit harsh. There's still a lot of anger and a lot of resentment, I think, particularly around when we're thinking about people taking out mortgages now. There's a, a sort of the Liz Trust premium, if you like. So I don't think that she uh, has has turned around her fortunes and when she left office. As I said, she was incredibly unpopular. Uh, well, it's funny you should say that, Patrick. Just as we were speaking, uh, Keir Starmer has been out and about in Bristol and said uh, he said his heart sunk at the idea of Liz Truss uh, coming back. Uh, to talk about uh, what happened. said, I have to say my heart sunk at the idea of former Prime Ministers taking the stage to tell us about what they did. They did huge damage to our country and to our economy. Uh, Patrick English from uh, Yugo, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Oh, well, up next, we're going to step away from the politics a little bit and actually dig into the economics. Did Liz Truss have a point when she said there's economic orthodoxy holding the country back? We're going to speak to two economists to ask us whether Liz Truss is right or... Wrong, wrong, wrong. Claude in Westminster has been in touch, saying, I can't believe how much time you're giving to Liz Truss. She's utterly irrelevant, deluded, naive, stupid, and most importantly, history. She poses no threat to Rishi Sunak, who rightly simply has ignored her. But I'm really keen, actually, genuinely, to get... Because it's easy just to dismiss her and say it's all nonsense. But has she got a point about anything that's happened to the economy in the past uh, decade or so? I'm joined now by the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, Paul Johnson, so, to sort of pick, pick through some of Liz Truss's claims. Morning, Paul. Morning. Do you feel like you're part of the left-wing establishment? Um, I've never felt by either left-wing or establishment, <laughs> if I'm uh, if I'm honest with you. I think um, you know. I think uh, a lot of the um, people that Liz Truss have problems with is much more the right-wing establishment. Those who don't want houses built or don't want roads built, the the NIMBYs, um, uh, those who don't want um, you know, changes to the tax system and so on. I mean, her own backbenchers were more of a problem than anyone else for some of the things that she wanted to achieve. Now, let's let's dig into some of the uh, specifics of what she said. The Office for Budget Responsibility, the, the watchdog set up by George Osborne to sort of mark the government's homework to produce independent forecasts. Liz Truss says the OBR's core purpose is to produce twice yearly forecasts on whether the government is on, tra on track to meet its fiscal targets. She says the problem is it can't take into account future spending decisions which she planned to outline later. So if they produced a report last year and she said that they're not dynamic enough and they're all about just basically adding up the the, the tax and spend columns and not examining what she calls sort of dynamic economics. So if you, you know, if you cut uh, the rate of tax, actually people might earn more money and therefore pay pay more tax. Is it a fair criticism of the the way the OBR works? 
Uh, I don't think that particular criticism is fair, no. I mean, the, the, the OBR specifically does model uh, the uh, it, what's happening. To, I, mean, I mean, the hardest thing the OBR does is actually have a, a is, is, is make forecasts about what's going to happen to the economy over the next few years. That is almost I mean, it's an almost impossible task. But within that, uh, they certainly take account of government policy um, uh, impacts on incentives on how hard people work on company company investment and all those sorts of things just as they took account of the impact of brexit um, and uh, along with all other forecasters assume that that and correctly assume that that would have a negative effect on growth at least into the medium term so um, you know that that is that is their job to do that now you might disagree with them and I think Liz trust would say um, well, uh, essentially, I disagree with the fact that they're only offering a quite limited positive impact in their forecast from the sorts of tax cuts that she was putting in place. I mean, I have to say also her point about spending is just not right because she was absolutely I mean, she she made clear in Parliament. I remember this very clearly. We will not cut spending, yeah. having just cut 45 billion off taxes. So, um, you know, if you want to, she should have done the two together if she was going to reduce spending in order to make those tax cuts um, affordable. But 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 she didn't. And the, and the point is, I think, not being an economist, is that cutting taxes would probably have helped with growth, but you can't fund them with extra borrowing in terms of reassuring the markets that you look like you know what you're doing. So it, the, the issue wasn't cutting taxes, it was them not being funded. And if she'd sort of squared them up with some spending cuts, it would have probably gone okay. Yeah, I mean, if you know, if she'd laid out a plan which said, look, over the next few years, this is what we're going to do with taxes, this is what we're going to do with spending, and you know, borrowing will go up somewhat, um, and I'm taking all of this seriously, then that would probably... Um, probably would have been fine. But what we got was, here's 45 billion of um, tax cuts. Quite explicitly, I'm not going to cut spending uh, to fund it. Um, and it, it, in a way, I mean, there's a sense in which she was a little bit unlucky. If she'd done this, you know, um, seven or eight years ago, might have got away with it in, in a sort of more benign economic situation, a more benign political um, situation, and a period when interest rates were very, very low, and there was no inflationary risk. There are points at which this might um, have gone better, but she did it at a moment when inflation was at its highest level for 40 years. Interest rates were already on their way up and we were already borrowing record amounts. It was the worst possible moment, in a sense, to do what she was doing. Um, Finally, Paul, can you explain personal liability, uh, pension liability driven investments? Uh, this, 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 This big hidden coming disaster that exploded just after she became Prime Minister, it seems. Nobody told her about it, she says. Can you explain what it is, and is it a fair criticism that she wasn't told about it? Well, um, it's not terribly fair criticism because, of course, it only caused a problem because of the other problems that what she did created. So as a result of the um, loss of confidence following the mini-budget, interest rates, uh, the, the pound went down and interest rates went up very fast. It was the fact that interest rates went up very fast that caused these problems with pension funds. Now, there's a fundamental problem here. It is a scandal, actually, that pension funds are in this position because, mm. once again, they took the view that you know, the world will never change and therefore you know, doing this stuff, which is basically taking a bet on interest rates, will be fine. Well, of course, the world does change. And um, I, I, it, 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 to be honest, it beggars belief that we ended up in a situation in which they behaved like this because they they set themselves open 
to this huge risk if if in, if interest rates did go up quickly, and they just assume because that hadn't happened for the last you know five minutes, it never would. And you know, that 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 I think is a is a very fair um, it's a very fair criticism of the pension funds and their regulation. But that wasn't the fundamental problem for Liz Truss. The fundamental problem is that she pushed interest rates up really fast because of the things that she was doing in that mini budget. Paul, thanks for that. Paul Johnson there from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. I sense that he thinks that Liz Truss was... Wrong, wrong, wrong. So let's now speak to uh, one of her supporters, certainly at the time. Mark Littlewood is Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs and writes in the Times today about what he calls an establishment that is wedded to an approach almost guaranteed to oversee economic decline. So, Mark, do you still think that Liz Truss was right? Well, I think her analysis was right, her medical diagnosis was right, and her surgery was not. Uh, I agree with actually quite a lot of what Paul Johnson said. Uh, you know, you announce a massively expensive energy package, and then apparently you've still got room for tax cuts, and then you indicate more tax cuts are coming. You know, that hits your credit rating with the markets. Uh, you can't really square that circle. Her her longer term aim, if she'd lasted more than 49 days, was to get spending down through, if you like, allowing inflation to eat away at it. So would have probably kept spending the same in nominal terms, but with inflation at 10%, that chews away at public sector spending. Uh, so there was absolutely chaotic execution of this. But where I have some sympathy with her was her overall diagnosis was that growth has been very poor in the UK and indeed in the West in general for some time. And this is strongly correlated with, indeed caused by the fact that we have very high government spending baked in, very high taxes and a very heavily, heavily regulated economy. And we're on that trajectory. We seem to get more and more of that with each passing year. And we need to put that into reverse. And I've got a lot of sympathy with what Paul says. I mean, the IFS come up with, uh, you know, their best sort of guesses and numbers after lots of soul searching. They're not just throwing numbers at a dartboard. But I do worry that we're in a position in which august organisations like the IFS or the OBR are assumed to have some sort of perfect scientific analysis of what's going to happen in six or 12 months time, when it, in fact, it's extremely difficult to work out, I don't know, what changes in planning rules might do to unleash economic growth. I think it would have a positive effect. I think it's nearly impossible to work out whether that would grow GDP by 0.7%, 1.4%, 1.6%. And sometimes we treat the social science of economics as an exact science and a somewhat more bean counting about it, I think. We sort of would produce it, a number from a spreadsheet. And in my view, if you take that institutional approach, you're unlikely to be sympathetic to, or at least unlikely to produce numbers which might endorse a sort of supply-side reform project, which, of course, Liz Truss never got off the launch pad. But would it but not be better, Mark? to find Mark, any favour in any modelling. Mark, would it not be better, then, to, to lay out an economic plan which where you do balance the books, then do your supply-side reforms, which lead to growth, and then you can revise your economic plans later? She could have she could have balanced the yeah. books last autumn and done her planning reforms. Then, if in a year, two years, three years' time, the economy is booming as a result of the the the, the planning reforms, then you, then you can count that money in. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the sequencing of the trust administration was 
was poor. I mean, ironically, they did, if you like, the easy bit at the start. You know, here are all your tax cuts. The bottom rate's going to the, the bottom rate's going to go down from twenty to nineteen. We they'd already promised to reverse the national insurance and corporation tax rises. They did this sort of shock and awe of getting rid of the forty five p rate. Here are all the sweeties, <laughs> and really those should come at the end of the process. Spending constraint uh, was not really baked in. And I think that's the order they should have done it in. Here are the decisions we're going to take yeah. on reducing spending. Tax cuts can then be the benefit of spending constraint. Uh, but Paul Johnson made a very good point, I think, just a few minutes ago, that uh, her own party uh, are not up for a lot of the forms she wanted. I mean, supposing these investment zones and relaxing planning restrictions had actually got before Parliament, they may well not have yeah. been asked so that supply side agenda i think she was right about if you like in economic terms that we need to deregulate especially the planning system uh, but there's nothing like a majority in parliament for that so it ain't going to happen until there is and trying to sort of force that through through sheer force of will uh, was not going to work the odds were stacked against her in political terms i think in institutional terms as well and if you've got a very very hard hand to play this is what all poker players will tell you if you've got a very very tricky hand to play which you did which she did uh you need to play that hand absolutely perfectly <laughs> to win and she certainly didn't do that now you talk about the, the the problems in the party and the the sort of the consensus and she says frankly we were pushing water uphill large parts of the media in the wider public sphere had become unfamiliar with key arguments about tax and economic policy, and over time, sentiment shifted leftwards. This is partly because, she says, we Conservatives had failed to make these arguments since 2010. But actually, if you look at what's happened since 2010, uh, in the decade, from 2010 to 2020, so pre the pandemic hitting, public spending as a share of GDP fell from 45.7% to 39.6%. In the five years when David Cameron and George Osborne were running the uh, public spending. The tax burden as a share of GDP fell from 33% to 32%, uh, 32.5%. So it's not, it's just not true that Conservatives were hiking taxes and public spending. The, the, actually, that, the, the, you know, but David Cameron, I suppose maybe the big difference is that David Cameron spent two, three years before 2010 making the case for austerity. Uh, yeah. and you need to spend longer doing that than two weeks of a, of a leadership contest. Yes, I think that's right. And you, you may have actually, Matt, just made Liz Truss's point perhaps um, more eloquently than she did herself. It's not so much about the actions. It is about, I think, the public explanation of those actions. So actually, when the coalition government came to office in 2010, they obviously did have the benefit of a completely clean sheet of paper. It had been a Labour government for the 13 preceding years. So anything that had gone wrong, you can blame on the other side. Liz Trust didn't have that. But they laid out in very clear terms, we can't afford this anymore. We're too stretched. The money's run out. And they had quite a lot of public sympathy and political support for their, their, their efforts to get spending under control. They didn't get spending under control as much as I would have liked. But nevertheless, uh, the, the juggernaut started to move in that direction. Yeah. I think Trust found herself in a position in which she was sort of saying growth, growth, growth. And actually, there wasn't really a, a, a sort of public understanding. The, the groundwork hadn't been laid. The pitch hadn't been rolled for people appreciating that woeful economic growth for the past 15 years is uh, the underlying cause of it being difficult to fund public services or taxes going up or wages being stagnant. So she sort of uh, started batting at a wicket where the pitch had not been yeah. right. Uh, that's partly her fault, but I think also partly the fault of all of us involved in think tanks and and public discourse 
who have simply haven't won that argument that our default is if there is a problem, the government will fix it. Just more spending will be found to fix it. And in that environment, uh, her ideas were unlikely to take off, frankly. Just finally then, Mark, you, you talk about you in the think tank world and the fact that you, you sort of agreed with at least her aims. Would you rather that she just shut up? Uh, no, I mean, I think that she has to lay out what she thought went wrong. Um, she has accepted that she wasn't blameless. Uh, she obviously has pointed her fingers at the institutions and indeed her own party, who she thinks weren't sufficiently on side with her. But I'm always interested to hear from, I mean, I've got no dog in the electoral fight. I'm always interested to hear from ex-prime ministers about what they think went right and wrong in their particular reign. And Liz Truss's is particularly interesting because it was so spectacularly short. So I didn't want to wait until she passed away and had put her memoirs in a box before we heard all of this. I think it's perfectly within her rights to explain what she thinks happened. And I think it's very useful for the public and those interested in public discourse to understand that. More yeah. power to her elbow in writing more essays, I say. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Mark Legault there from the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs. Before that, we heard from Paul Johnson from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. The pollster, Patrick English, and Katie Balls uh, from The Spectator. As we asked, is Liz Truss right or... Wrong, wrong, wrong. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.